You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that really means is that I'm not going to be offering basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. <clears throat> that being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. Uh, I'm just not routinely covering the basics. We are going slowly through the Manual of Insight, which is the new Mahasi Sayadaw translation by the Metta the Vipassana Metta Foundation. <clears throat> and we're in the chapter called The Development of Mindfulness, and tonight we're talking about uh, the six uh, equanimities. Six-fold equanimity. Uh, this type of mental process can be experienced fairly clearly at the level of insight knowledge of equanimity toward phenomena where equanimity prevails and one remains balanced. One verifies this point with one's own experience at that level and is said to possess sixfold equanimity like an arahat. Uh, uh, <clears throat> it is good for Biko from time to time to dwell equanimous, mindful, and clearly comprehending, uh, having turned away from both the repulsive and the unrepulsive. Uh, this part refers to sixfold equanimity, which is comparable to an arhat's mental state. However, it is not really the equanimity of an arahat. In his discourse, the Buddha refers only to insight. An accomplished meditator who has attained knowledge of arising and passing can have this kind of equanimity. Um, <clears throat> in some sense, it would be said that an arahat, everybody know what an arahat is? Um, all right, so we're. This is page 161. So, what we're talking about here is classical enlightenment and uh, the convent in the Theravada Buddhist world. It's a four path model of uh, enlightenment, and arahatship is the fourth path of enlightenment, which is the complete eradication of all ten fetters. So it would likely be said that somebody who was at that uh, level of realization would be continuously equanimous in all sensing experiences all of the time. And so when it says that uh, you can experience momentary equanimity that is equivalent to the state of mind of an arahat, the piece that's missing is that you're unlikely to have that continuously in all situations, if that's making sense. Um, six-fold equanimity means that all you, you have equanimity in all six sense gates at the same time. So in, in touch, there's equanimity in seeing, there's equanimity in hearing, there's equanimity in tasting, there's equanimity in smelling, there's equanimity, and in thinking, there's equanimity. In Vipassana, V means, in Pali word, Vipassana is a Pali word, V means to divide and Pasana means to see and what we're really talking about is dividing the six senses into their individual strands. And so if you wanted to foster the arising of equanimity, then you would begin to in investigate each strand of sensing and uh, attempt to bring each strand into equanimity. 
another way to put it is if you find that you're not in equanimity, you can then begin to examine the six strands of sensing to see where you're not in equanimity and maybe then bring some adjustment to the particular sense that's not in uh, equanimity. We t talk about that in terms of craving or aversion or unconsciousness. Um, in the in this uh, Karnaka Samadhi practice, Karnaka Samadhi is a Pali word that means momentary concentration insight practice. In the moment of noting the mind is pure, what we mean by a pure mind is that there are no hindrances attached. In the moment of sensing, we know the sensing experience, we know the quality of the sensing experience as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then we, we attach to the sensing experience to form the experience of self and world, which is the moment where, if there are any defilements, that they attach to the experience. In momentary concentration insight practice, you don't need to be free of the, uh, of the defilements except in the moment of noting. The concentration comes only in that moment of noting. And so you can have these little hits of pure equanimous sensing. And then the spaces in between are, are filled with the defilements. And then as you develop a, a momentum of noting, the spaces without the hindrances get bigger and bigger until they're in, a, in some sense continuous and you're out of the, the defilements. <clears throat> The knowledge of arising and passing away is the fourth stage of uh, insight. So what it says here, this part refers to sixfold equanimity, which is comparable to an arahat's mental state. However, it is not really the equanimity of an arahat. In this discourse, the Buddha refers only to insight, an accomplished meditator who has attained knowledge of arising and passing away can have this kind of equanimity. The, this book is a commentary really on the 16 stages of insight, which is the Theravada map or Dharma map for how to achieve classical enlightenment. Um, <clears throat> the first path is the eradication of the first three fetters. So the, the four path model is an eradication of the 10 fetters. Um, and uh, often the arising and passing and dissolution event, which is the fourth and fifth stage, is mistaken for the uh, cessation event because of the deep experience of equanimity that tends to arise in uh, the fourth and fifth stage of practice. The first stage is nama rupa, or uh, investigating body-mind, and so this is the exploration of the pure sensing experience. This is the, what is the sensing experience and what is the quality of the sensing experience? That's nama rupa, or the first stage. Um, <clears throat> the second stage is, is called conditionality, and what you begin to investigate in the second stage is the, m the movement of attention from mind moment to mind moment, and to begin to, to track the conditions of the present moment which set up the, the conditions for the next moment. To understand that the past moment has set up the conditions for this moment and that this moment is setting up the conditions for the next moment as your awareness moves through these mind moments of sense arising. 
The third is the third stage is uh, the exploration of not self uh, impermanence and unsatisfactoriness. That you begin to see the the, the sensing experience as reflective of these uh, marks or characteristics of existence in the human form. There is no continuous, solid, ongoing, intrinsic sense of self, that the sense of self arises based on the conditions of the present moment. So it's the, the flow of sensing into the flow of conditionality, into the flow of how those sensing experiences are, are fixed or attached to. So we move uh, into this uh, third aspect, um, uh, the sensing experience. Uh, the word in, in English for how this goes is called attachment. Uh, sometimes confusing talking to me because I'm also talking about attachment theory, which is another whole definition. But in terms of Buddhist thought, attachment means that you fixate or attach or grip to a sensing experience and that forms it into the perception of self and world or it creates the duality of mind where I am the sensor doer owner and this is the experience that I'm having which is not as if they were not the same even though the experience of self is the same sensing experience as the thing that the self experience is experiencing. Is that helpful sometimes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if the world is solid, you're in self. If the world is flowing, you're not. Or to the degree that it's flowing, you're not. Maybe that's an easier way to do it. Like a spectrum, right? Um, yeah, I sometimes think of it as a dimmer switch. You know, sometimes the sense of self is really bright and solid, and sometimes you can barely detect that it's there, but it still is. And then when it's not there at all, it, you don't know, because there's no witness, right? It's just energy, just flowing energy. The fourth stage, arising and passing, which follows uh, not self, impermanence and um, um, uh, unsatisfactoriness is called uh, um, arising and passing. And what we begin to do is pay attention to the arising of a sensing event, the middle of it, and the ending of a sensing event. And uh, in uh, in turning our attention to whatever sense gate we turn it to, we notice that all sensing experience is arising, there's a middle part and then a passing away, and that nothing is not that. All sensing experience, all of our capacity to be able to detect anything is this process of arising and passing. And if we then begin to reflect on sixfold equanimity, each sensing gate is a, a sensing experience is arising and passing and depending on the patterns of arisings and passings in each of these different sense gates it comes together into a, a whole of what the experience is or what we make the experience into. Is that making sense? 
because the mind is really only capable of paying attention to one thing at a time, if we, if we uh, zoom in and focus on only one aspect of the sensing experience at a time, we can have a clear image of what that is. And if we poke around and, and pull at each of the sense gates around an experience as it's happening, we can know what the individual threads are that have then come together into this experience. And so in zooming out, we see what the whole experience is, and then in zooming in, we see what the individual pieces are that make up the experience. We know from a direct experience what the whole experience is, but when we zoom in, we can only know the individual strands. So then from with inferential insight, we understand that if the, the zoomed out experience is happening, and we've zoomed in into one thread of it, that the other threads are there because that, that experience is happening. And then we can move to find equanimity with each of the different threads. And so when we zoom out, we have equanimity with the whole experience. Is that making sense in terms of that description? An arising a passing event as described in the fourth stage is a, a moment of super high concentration where wherever you turn your attention you can see clearly the arising and passing and what happens in that moment is that the solidity of the world, the solidity of this sense of self gives way and you, you come into a place of just being present for the sensing experience without the attachment which fixates it, which is the equanimity that we're talking about that's equivalent to an arahat's mind state. That in that, when you're in a place of super high concentration and perfect equanimity where you're not fixating any of these individual arisings, then the whole world begins to just simply be flowing energy with nothing fixed, fixated, nothing clinged to, clinging as you may recall is the, the, the cause of suffering. So um, the fifth stage is called dissolution and in dissolution you are in, in a flow of energy so that you can no longer detect the individual sense gates, you can no longer detect the inside from the outside of the body. For instance, you could not locate the body in the sensing experience. You could not say, tell the difference between sitting, the chair that you're sitting on in the body, the, the, the flowing sense experience is just that, pure flow, super high concentrated, super equanimous, and then you're dumped out into <laughs> the knowledge of the miseries. Uh -huh. Is, uh, is this a rising and passing, and the dissolution of that that you just described, is that typically something that would happen in formal meditation practice, or is that, would that sometimes just happen spontaneously, as Shinzen likes to say, when you're just out bopping around, around the world? The world yeah. <laughs> um, most of the time, what I notice is for the first time around, it happens uh, uh, in practice, and then um, depending on how well you are at putting things back together, it could go on for weeks afterwards, just happening. 
Uh, and that's one of the things that f people find the most disconcerting about it is that the world just dissolves and they can't fixate it again. Um, when I originally had these issues and, and was talking to Shinzen about it, he said, imagine that you're, you're, there's a big back garden and there's a gate and the gate opens out into the wilderness. Um, the wilderness is the flow state and the, the highly manicured garden is the, is the fixated sense of self and world. There's a gate on the wall that separates the two and sometimes the latch sticks and you can't get out of the self and then you're in the, in the flow state and you can't get out of the flow state because you can't get through the gate and that a deeply integrated experience, a deeply liberated experience would be that you're able to manage the gate whenever you want to coming from fixated, highly functional, brilliant sense of self into flow or highly liberated people into cessation whenever you want. That would be a definition of freedom, but in, in the part where the gate is sticking and you can't, have you ever stood at a gate wiggling your key frantically trying to get it to open the lock? That's kind of the experience of it. So George, when you're in flow, can you understand language if you're not fixating on what the If there's no self, you can't. So there's no language, there's no shape in that, in that mm -hmm. dissolution space. And there's also degrees of that. I, I, a couple of years ago on a Zaka Lake retreat, I had dissolution of everything except for my head and my feet. And I was walking around and it felt like my head was a balloon that was sort of following along my, <laughs> my feet. <laughs> the dissolution experience is really ordinary in, in practice. So um, I, I have it very often. Um, on retreat. Most often if I go on a, a retreat that's longer than say a week I'll, I'll be in a dissolution experience by the end of the retreat. Um, and so it's no longer frightening to me in the, in the same way that it, it was in the beginning. It's, I, I actually look forward to it and it's fun. Now, it does tend to peel away deep layers of conditioning, and, and that can be very, I mean, coming up, coming off this last retreat, I found uh, I've been incredibly brittle for a week. It's a really strong aftershock from the, the retreat. Um, you know, really getting into those deep layers of, of loss from early life. But the experience of, of, of sitting wasn't that. The experience of sitting was pretty ordinary. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's hard to make, it's hard to evaluate how your practice is going based on the quality of your sitting, because that isn't actually the measure. The measure is how is it affecting the, the procedural automatic responses to the making of self and world. That's what you want to evaluate as whether the practice is going good, not whether you're enjoying your sits or not. <laughs> what? Oh, I just had an awesome sit. I was so concentrated. Five hours later. <laughs> oh, I just had a terrible sit. I couldn't concentrate for a minute. I mean, that is totally not predictive of how well the, the 
the practice is going. It's still very relevant. <laughs> well, in terms of <laughs> getting you to practice. Deciding whether or not to sit. Chasing and craving. Are there householders who are also our Um it's an interesting dilemma. So Daniel Ingram says that he is an arahat and he is a householder. So the answer would be yes. Um, I don't think I'm in a position to actually evaluate someone's arahatness. <laughs> <laughs> A non-monastic, okay. someone who has to function in the world. Um, so, for instance, in the first, um, the first path, you eradicate the belief that religious ceremony is the same thing as enlightenment. The the belief that there's a, a self and uh, the hindrance of doubt is, uh, is eradicated. The hindrance of doubt um, is not all doubt, it's just the doubt that this practice will lead to liberation. Um, you have the cessation experience and you come out of the cessation experience and you have the direct awareness of the liberated self and that eradicates the doubt because you've had the experience of uh, enlightenment that they're talking about, the basic one. This is a low bar. I know sometimes we think that enlightenment is this high bar that nobody can reach, but stream entry, believe me, is a low bar. Uh, <laughs> It's, it, it's ordinary householders can get over that hurdle and have these kinds of experience. In fact, many people come to the practice because they've had the experience spontaneously and they don't know what to do because it changes their view of everything. Um, the second path is a weakening of craving and aversion not the eradication, just a weakening of craving and aversion. And if you have first path, what you know is that you, you're flung into the most intense craving experiences, the most intense aversive experiences, way beyond anything that ordinary life has prevented, pre presented before, and you are in this state of just drivenness, which is... It, it, you, you know, it, for instance, if you run into somebody and they're going to six retreats a year, they're sitting for 10 hours at a time, then you, you realize they've probably had stream entry. <laughs> because that's what happens to you. <clears throat> and then you weaken, weaken, weaken craving and so that you're no longer driven by it, but you're still having the experiences of it. And that would be second path. Third path is the elimination or the eradication of craving and aversion. So this would get to the, the long way around to the answer. I look at people who are supposed to have attained third and fourth path and I still experience them as craving individuals, as aversive individuals. And so from my perspective over here, I, I think that that does not match my idea of what the elimination of craving and aversion is. But I can also tell you uh, that 
when I when I uh, before the early stream entry experience, I couldn't have described what that would be like at all. I had really no concept of what it actually was to have that experience. Um, I thought that um, cavalierly, when I began my practice, that I would be able to eliminate all problems from life. And that actually was why I came. I wanted to have no more problems. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody just gets what I, what does change of course is the relationship to being human, right? We are human, we're in this incarnation, in these bodies, um, which will not last. Uh, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I'm, my, I had a, a flea bite in, in when I was in Myanmar, which I had an, a severe allergic rea uh, uh, reaction to. When I went to the doctor, he said, white people have thin skin. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why they have these intense allergic reactions to fleas, whereas the Miramar have thick skin so that they don't react to the fleas in the same way. But it spiked my blood pressure, the allergic reaction, and it, it hasn't come down, and so now I'm trying to take medication to, to bring it down into a safe level. And, I, and it, it isn't like they give you a pill and it works, it's like, here, try this. Here's a piece of spaghetti, throw it at the wall, see if it sticks, it's, you know. So I have one that works really good on one of the numbers, but not on the other number. Do you know there's two numbers in blood pressure? So they gave me a second medication for the second number that the first pill wasn't working with, and it works really well for the second number, but it's jacked up the first number. <laughs> This is called Duca! <laughs> Samsara, right? This is the human condition, right? This is the body. Um, I have a, an excellent diet for high blood pressure. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because the doctor says that 80% of blood pressure is genetic. And the reason that you're in your 60s and have not been on this medication for 20 years is because of your diet, which has worked out well. But it still means that I'm 64. This is what this part of being in a body is like. Um, so. Did he acknowledge your meditation practice? Something that was helpful for you? You know, it's very funny. When I used to go in and um, they, they would take my blood pressure and it would be, I was, for years I was on the edge of medication or no medication. And if it was two, I'd say, give me 10 minutes and come back and I would just <laughs> meditate. <laughs> They'd come back and it would have dropped five points or something like that. So yeah, they don't, for the most part, have a clue what you're talking about when you say meditation, right? <clears throat> So if you haven't had these deep equanimous experiences, then um, uh, this is then the exploration of how to come into them. And that's what we want to begin to do 
pulling apart the six senses. We, we use often a Shinzen Yang technique, which is the division into three main categories, seeing, hearing, feeling, uh, and then investigating whether or not you have equanimity in each of these sense gates. The, um, <clears throat> so uh, I'm going to give a general sense of this. So in each sense gate, you have the capacity to sense. So in seeing, there's a sensitivity to light. And in hearing, there's a sensitivity to sound. In smelling, there's a sensitivity to things that can be smelled. In tasting, there's a sensitivity to things that can be tasted. In feeling, there's a sensitivity to a range of sensations that the body can detect. Uh, any object that we encounter with one of our sense gates that can be sensed by that sense gate will then have a consciousness of the sensing experience arise. So we have the basic capacity to sense and the object that can be sensed. If there's no contact between the capacity to sense and the object that can be sensed, then there's no consciousness of sensing experience and we don't know anything about it. It's only when there is contact that a consciousness of the sensing experience arises and we know it. In that moment, there is the sensing activity, there is whether we like, whether, whether the quality of the sensing uh, activity is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then there's a process of our conditioning attaching to the pattern recognition. So sensing is, is could be described as a process of pattern recognition. And then we have a database of all the previous experiences that we've recorded that are patterns, and we compare this moment of sensing to our history of sensing, and if there's a match, then the conditioning of that previous sensing experience attaches to the sensing experience of the present moment. Is that making sense? You following me so far? You're understanding the words that I'm saying because you've been conditioned to understand the English language. If you weren't conditioned to understand the English language, you would hear maybe not even words. When, when I go to Myanmar, I can't distinguish the sentences, I can't distinguish the words from what they're saying, and it's a tonal language and there are four tones that they use, and each word has a definition that's different based on the tone in which it's said. Uh, they almost never say no. They'll say, yes, we'll, we'll do that in a tone that means no, they won't. <laughs> 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 In English, we have it too. <laughs> but it's very confusing uh, for most of us Westerners are not trained to listen to the tone that it's set in in terms of meaning. We, we, we get a subtext of meaning, but we're not actually changing the definition of the word that we're hearing based on the tone that it's set in. And we were constantly in, in, um, in politeness problems in 
um, <clears throat> because we would take at face value what they said, even though what they meant was something entirely different than, particularly because they're, it's being translated into English, right? Um, so it required greater and greater sensitivity to actually what, what was the dynamic and what, what were they actually telling us and what were we really supposed to be doing rather than just listening to the meaning of the words. Um, <clears throat> so we have the sensing experience, we have the quality of the sensing experience, and then we have the thing that we make it into which is based on this recognition. So that also puts us in this place where we can easily slip into the past and be responding from the conditioned place rather than from the conditions of the present moment. So these are all of these awarenesses that you want to begin to develop. This is the present moment and we recognize that these are the conditions of the present moment and they're conditioned by our understanding of what that means to us based on our conditioning. In addition to that, there's also what we decided to do in each of those previous cases, what we did in all of those previous cases, and how it turned out in all of those previous cases. So uh, all of that happens as soon as the conditioning attaches to the sensing experience. And if you don't have spaciousness and operate in the sensing, sensing experience of the present moment, it's easy to drift back into the conditioned experience and then act as if the predictable outcome is the thing that's guaranteed to happen. Are you following me on this? So that we're responding from a place of the past outcome rather than the potential of the, the experience of the present moment. Um, one of the things that's, um, for instance, we've been talking about um, in uh, relational responses. <coughs> my, the voice in my head, if I would just watch it play out in terms of human relationships, it would be, at some point you're going to betray me, publicly humiliate me, and then abandon me. Um, and that's my conditioned response. So if I'm attracted to you within the time it takes for the conditioning to atta attach, I've been betrayed, humiliated, and abandoned, right? And it doesn't provide a lot of energy to engage in meeting new people. <laughs> uh, I still meet new people and I still engage in productive relationships, but a lot of it is a, is a push through resistance to get there because of the conditioning. Right. And if you're not aware that the conditioning is, is happening, you see somebody, you really like them, and by the time you get over to them, you're, you're going, fuck you! <laughs> is that right speech? <laughs> How could you? <laughs> So how do you unwind that stuff? That's what we, that's really ultimately what this practice is meant to be, to get us to be able to inhabit the conditions of the present moment and keep separate the conditioning that gets us to understand actually what's happening in terms of self and world and then to be open to the experience of the present moment as it happens. And that's equanimity. 
Equanimity is to be in the present moment and allow whatever happens to happen without uh, not wanting it or wanting something different or spacing out or being put to sleep or um, the mind just getting super activated, all of that stuff. Just to be present and watch the flow of the sensing experience as it's made into self and world and as that then dissolves into the next moment moment after moment. Now if you notice that the mind is not equanimous, we then have this, in, this capacity to begin to investigate, am I equanimous in this sense sphere? Am I equanimous in this one? If I'm, equanimous, if I'm not equanimous in this one, what's, what uh, process can I then bring to it to allow that to settle into a place of equanimity so that I can be uh, in equanimity. It's this piece pulling apart. Um, Shinzen <coughs> likes the metaphor of a computer monitor. Um, the computer monitor is white. And if you would say, can you investigate where the whiteness of the com computer monitor is by zooming in? If you zoom in, you would see that there's no white there at all. It's just dots of red, green, and blue. If you zoom out, of course, the mind creates the whiteness out of the experience of red, green, and blue. So the individual strands then are these sensing experiences of seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, and thinking that the mind makes into the experience of the world. <coughs> I prefer the, mon the, the monitor uh, being filled with a movie, right? Action actually happening on the screen. Uh, because that's more like what our experience is. We keep making the world up and we keep acting as if the way that we've made up the world is the way that the world actually is. But it, it is made up based on our conditioned response to the experience of red, green, and blue in the present moment. And it could be wildly off from what's actually happening based on our conditioning. And the more that we respond from a conditioned place, the less likely we are to actually be in sync with the conditions of the present moment as they are. There is no obligation in the present moment for everyone in the world to betray me, to publicly heal, humiliate me, and to then abandon me. <laughs> Even though that's my headset, right? That's my frame of reference. Only because, not because I'm in some way misinterpreting what happened. That did happen with my earliest experience in relationships over and over again because of my early childhood experiences. It's not that I misunderstood what happened. I didn't misunderstand what happened. I was present for what happened. The, 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 the problem is that that's then, and I have more agency now, and I can choose differently, um, but the patterning, the early patterning is still the same. Is that making sense? Yeah. I know that I'm not three years old and, and being betrayed in Skokie, Illinois, you know what I mean? <laughs> Part of your brain doesn't know that, doesn't activate that. Well, <coughs> or mind, I'm not sure, mind or brain. What happens is we have the, the capacity to place our attention on different aspects of experience in, in, in the moment. 
And if we're in the, if we're mindful of the conditions of the present moment, the the conditioning does not distort, right? It's when we move away from that perception of the, that equanimous perception of the present moment that we can slip into the past, and then we're actually operating not from the conditions of the present moment, but uh, from the conditioned past. Is that making sense? If you had space, if you could create enough space, then you could easily tell whether you're operating in the conditioned past or you've pushed into the present moment. For instance, a lot of us carry somaticized emotional experience, which is uh, these uh, intense experiences of uh, often afflictive emotion, and they release. <coughs> Something happens in the present moment which reminds you of the pattern of the somaticized emotion. It creates a resonance in the somaticized emotion and then you have a big wave, let's say, of sadness releasing in response to the conditions of the present moment. If you have spaciousness around that, you know that this is the present moment and this is the past. This is the old stuff releasing. And then you know that there's nothing that the conditions of the present moment will do to effectively relieve you from that intensity of suffering from the past because it didn't cause it. Uh, but if you don't and they conflate, then you think that the conditions of the present moment are causing this intense emotional experience and then you're demanding that the conditions of the present moment be changed so that you can be relieved of this terrible suffering. And even when they change the conditions of the present moment, it doesn't relieve the terrible suffering and then you're just in this state of catastrophe because you think that nothing can ever relieve the suffering. But if you had space, if you had clarity, you could see that actually the conditions of the present moment aren't that. And that this is old and it just needs to percolate and release. And that you can have equanimity with that intensity of sadness and, and not lose the joyfulness of the present moment or the potential of the joyfulness of the present moment. And then the old stuff is gone and you don't have to have it anymore. It's the, the suppression of it, the unwillingness, the aversion to that experience that just keeps it waiting and sapping all of the energy that it takes then to hold that experience. But it is a grind also to have to release it. So depending on the level of difficulty that you faced in your childhood, you'll have more or less of that to do. So let's do some triple noting. First we're going to note for sensory clarity just a basic see, hear, feel. Then we're going to note for the quality of the sensing experience, is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And then we're going to note for uh, equanimity. Are, is the, are you equanimous with the experience of the present moment or are you noticing that there are some uh, defilements arising and we'll limit the number of defilements to track to just craving, aversion, and unconsciousness. In craving, you want something different. In aversion, you don't want what is. Sometimes you can have both or all three at the same time. Unconsciousness is 
usually not something you notice until you're already unconscious. So you'll be caught up in thinking by the time you notice that that's happened. Up until that's happened, actually you've not been caught up. So uh, I like to say, uh, just note that you've been caught up and come back. Uh -huh. It's like sometimes it's if you can even tease apart the meaning from the aversion, it's hard to even sometimes recognize that one of the defilements is present. Uh huh. Does that make sense? Right. <clears throat> so and that's so it's a, just an experience, but it's not like a this conscious. There's not necessarily something. There's not a consciousness associated with the sensation of it, but it's just there's not a consciousness of. The relationship to the experience. Right. It's it's about the relationship to the experience. Okay. And we haven't yet gotten to the content of anything. The content doesn't matter. We're looking for activation in the sense gate, and then what is the quality of the sensing experience, and then um, whether you want it, you don't want it you're uninterested in it, so you're thinking about something else, or you're actually equanimous and you can be fine with whatever it is. I like to note the third level with wanting, not wanting, thinking, or peace, um, mostly because uh, craving and aversion somehow lose their meaning to me when I'm, when I'm sitting for long periods. So the wanting or not wanting is easier to understand. And then who knows how long you've been traveling the mental highways before you recognize that you're thinking, so you just note it as thinking and come back. And how did that go? See, hear, feel unpleasant, not wanting. <laughs> Fuck this, I'm just going to think. <laughs> Did anybody notice that as you got more and more equanimous that uh, the senses began to flow? That's where you might notice it heads if you get there. But that the flowing really comes out of the equanimity that arises. Uh-huh. Uh, I found a subtle separation of uh, the vocal cords. You know when you think and you create a voice. You think it's your voice. Mm. And you feel I always found that in meditation was quite annoying. The voice. subtle vibratory activity in the vocal right, cords. If the mind is thinking and it needs to hear itself. Right. Voice. I was able to purely think <laughs> without the need to speak to myself. Mm. To understand. I think what you'll also notice is that 
the cognition of the clear thought will precede the clear thought mm. and there's a subtle vibratory energy that when one uh, hear space begins to flow mm. that also is often resonated in the vocal cords mm -hmm. so you have this feedback of the, the vibration of the vocal cords even when there's no clear talk just mm -hmm. when there's the cognition of what the clear talk would be it still operates mm -hmm. I used to not I used to have a hard time finding the subtle vibratory energy in, in, in talk space or hear space, but I would find it easily in the vocal cords, and then I would look for the same pattern of vibration in the head in order to get into the flow of, of hear space. So that this seemed to be a very clear thinking without the disruption of trying to be right. extra step, right? Um, I, when you get concentrated on smaller and smaller things, the other things just sort of push into the background. So I like I can uh, like turn the auditory thoughts into a physical experience, and so it just sort of like I'll just sort of like fo focus on the physicalization of. And then it like manifests in the body. In the and is that an emotional experience? Yeah. It's a breaking, it's a very, it's just like a transfer. Well, when you. Thought is audio, visual, and emotion in the body, typically. So there are all three of those aspects typically arising in each moment of thinking. That's an emotional. So it's, it's actually in the pulling, see, hear, and feel apart, we're pulling apart the threads that tend to make up the experience of self into their individual components. And so then you watch them individually, and then you zoom out and watch them all together. That's, the, the pro that's actually the process of Vipassana in the way. Clearly, the dogs are disagreeing. <laughs> Well, when you think about it, emotion in the emotion in response to the present moment is then regulated by thinking. So if you're not equanimous with the reaction to the present moment, then you notice that the mind is also very active in attempting to, to regulate the experience. So then lots of visual, lots of auditory, and then the additional emotion of the thought generated. Oh, and then you could have pools too. <laughs> I can turn that off, but then it's just like the pools. It's such an intense, yeah. and then that just is so distracting. It's very hard to find equanimity with that. Um, if you can uh, understand that the energy of the pool is PT, right? Yeah. So you can use the PT of the pool as a way into jhana. You focus on the, the, the contractive energy of the pool or whatever the energy of the pool is and concentrate on that. And even if it's releasing sadness or something afflictive, the more concentrated you become, not on the emotion side, but on the energy mm -hmm. side, the more intense the bliss experience is that counteracts the, the, the uh, afflictive emotion. And then if you get one pointed in it, you can 
I mean, I, I, I can say from experience that I've, I've gone through all eight jhanas focusing on the PT of the pool. Uh, what's, what's that word? What's the... Well, there's the four regular jhanas and there's the, then the four esoteric jhanas. First jhana, you know, five elements. You place your attention, you sustain your attention. You, you notice when flow starts or PT starts, you focus on that as the object of meditation. Sukha arises and you become one-pointed. It's unstable, so you're coming and going. And then when it stabilizes, then it's just PT, uh, it's just PT, Sukha, and Ekagata, or one-pointedness. And then at a certain point, the energy of the PT is too uh, coarse, and so you settle further into just bliss and one-pointedness. And then in the fourth jhana, the bliss goes and is replaced by equanimity, and then you're in this place of equanimity. Fifth jhana then is this expansive, big mind big sky sometimes they call it it's this wildly expansive energy and then the sixth jhana you become um, focused so still and focused that a casina of white light forms and it's like a bright light be is being shined in your eyes I, I was, have you ever remember those 30s movies with the police interrogation it's <laughs> kind of like that or a it's as if a car is parked here and shooting light into your face. What is that? What is that? That casino. That's the casino is a is a, a a light. The mind fills with light. This is like a bright white light that's there. And then the seventh jhana, the the white light goes and you go into total darkness except for a, a, a kind of crystalline blue light, which is sort of surrounding. Um, and then uh, the eighth jhana uh, is only darkness, no, just awareness with no sensory arisings of any kind. Eighth jhana is also quite unstable. You bounce in and out of it. This darkness you speak of similar to the fourth jhana, or like is it? Um, it's a. It is. <laughs> It reminded me, the, the first time it happened, of in the 80s, misdialing a number and finding myself in like a, a dark, the dark side of the phone company. <laughs> okay, maybe I can explain. There. You used to be able to call certain numbers and it would open private communications that weren't available publicly and you could sort of randomly fall into them and, uh, and there would be a voice. Who are you? How'd you get this number? Right, that kind of thing. And it would sound dark and spacious. Anyway, that's what it reminded me. But don't they talk about the dark web or something? Uh -huh. What do they call that? Well, that used to be the dark phone company. <laughs> uh, don't underestimate the corporate world. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> and what they're willing to do. Um, anyway.
So imagine aware, pure awareness, but no sensory activation. So right, you have the capacity to sense, and then the object can be sensed. But if there's no contact, then there's no arising of any sensing experience. But awareness is still there, and awareness is still knowing that. In the eighth jhana, there's no sensory arising, but the awareness is there knowing that there's no sensory arising. So you have this experience of pure awareness, which is, is cool. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, uh, and it's unstable because you, you keep dropping down back into the other ones. The, the, I was sitting um, in uh, La Casa de Maria um, the first time this, the sixth jhana happened, and I, I was thinking that some asshole had driven their car and parked it directly in front of me, and I opened my eyes, and of course, it wasn't even possible to drive a car there. <laughs> but it was so vivid in terms of what uh, the mind can create. And part of the insight into this is that you realize how much the mind can make things up and how viscerally real they feel. And it opens you to this possibility of not believing everything that comes at you, which is actually where the freedom comes from. You don't have to believe it. You can actually reinvestigate. How did I sense this? How did I make the world like this? Is this an accurate reflection of how the world is? Mm -hmm. It's been unusual for someone to uh, maybe be deficient or not as skillful in their one of the sensory experiences and one of the sensory gates. Um, so I'm going to intuit from that that you don't have a lot of visual thinking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine how common that is? Uh, if I can intuit it just from what you're asking, how often it is that people don't really have much awareness of their visual thinking. So it's just a, in some sense, it's a question of. Um, developing clarity around it, but also understanding that most people are more auditorily oriented than visually oriented internally, and that that's, that's just how your thinking process is, rather than a deficiency. It's just fine, the way that it is. <laughs> uh -huh. Can visual thinking also just be like when you, your attention turns to the screen, but it's dark? Yeah, that's it. The screen is there, and sometimes there's image, and sometimes there isn't. But there's also the aspect of proprioceptus, knowing the position the body's currently in. Mm -hmm. And that's a constant feedback between visual thinking and, and the felt sense of the body, so that if you sit in stillness, it can also wildly distort. Mm -hmm. After 45 minutes of not moving, my proprioceptic experience of the body will be a pair with five points. <laughs> So in thinking, right? So it, it doesn't feel like active thinking. It's more like listening. Right. But spiritually. I would, would be more inclined to go toward a, a not self experience rather than 
I like to, in a creative sense, completely operate from not self. It's then yeah. you've got the 11 million bits pumping for you yeah. rather than the 16. Right. When I used to use a still camera, I used it, would use a four, four by five, and it would the whole process of taking a picture would take about 30 minutes, mm -hmm. and it would be most satisfying if I didn't know what picture I had taken yeah. until I got into the dark room and developed it. And then sometimes I would be puzzled as to what picture I had taken. <laughs> what the hell is this? <laughs> It's kind of hard with a 4x5 camera, it's a very deliberate camera. It's very deliberate, but the steps are, are pretty much all, all the same. Mm -hmm. And so you could, I could get into a rhythm of just running through the steps, you know. Mm -hmm. Driving by, seeing, this is what the fun part. I would drive by and I would see the picture that I wanted to take and then I would get out of the car to make sure that actually it was there because mm -hmm. I could have made it up. Right as I was driving by and then I get there and actually the thing that I saw that was there was not actually there. Mm -hmm. that, that would be the most fun. And then if it is there, trying to figure out how to compress it into a frame, but then the, 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 the tilts and swings and all of that stuff just happens in a way after a while. Now it's all digital. That's fun because you really, you don't even pay attention to what's <laughs> happening and just clicking because you can do 800 versions. <laughs> uh -huh. I have a lot of body distortion in this uh -huh. sit. Um, I was noting in its feel. Uh -huh. Depending, it could be feel or see, depending on which aspect of what you were in. If it, it's too disconcerting, just move and it will snap back to its normal proportion and then you can watch it drift again. I, I actually find it one of the more entertaining things of I practice. Like it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, and then it would trigger like a memory. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you're in the flow of good. All right, we've run out of time. Thank you for coming. This is deepening your practice. Um, I have, um, I think, some flyers. We have a couple of intensives that are going to start in um, August. One is the Meaningful Life, um, and one is um, Meditation Intervention. Meaningful Life is a uh, meditation-based program that examines <coughs> your uh, operation in relationships. So it's looking at attachment theory, doing a, an initial assessment of what your attachment strategy is, and then looking at how attachment strategy patterns affect how you think of yourself and how you think of the world, and then how in operating uh, from the working model that's based on your early conditioning, you form relationships and patterns around that. Um, so uh, I find it to be a highly useful 
uh, exploration around the, the way that you organize relationships. This is particularly important because relationships really do explore the exploration that you're able to do with your life and if you're not well supported in your relationships it limits or curtails the exploration that you're willing to do and it affects the meaningfulness that you find. Uh, in your life, so that improving these things can really make the exploration much more interesting. Um, some attachment disturbances uh, tend to lead to addiction, and so we have a class that's oriented around relapse prevention. So this is a post-acute care, uh, or at least that's the intention of the class. We, we've always had people who come to the class and attempt to use the class as a way of getting clean or sober or out of their process addictions and we are totally welcoming of people to, to do that but it is really designed as a post-acute treatment and, and, and relapse prevention orientation. Um, we look at the main conduits of, of relapse and then also at uh, uh, the attachment conditioning because I think of addiction as an attachment disturbance and if you can begin to examine the early conditioning that led to the use of substances and processes as a substitute for personal relationships and then begin to figure out how to re-enter re the, the, the realm of or maybe enter for the first time the realm of supportive relationships it relieves a lot of the pressure on on relapse. The classes here are offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna here is $20 um, and actually that that is a good amount for us in order to make the, the use of this space sustainable. I put a hat out there because I forgot to bring the, the bell for the donations and you could put cash in there and if you uh, need to use a card I can take the card from you uh, here. Thank you so much for coming. It's really appreciated, and we will see you next time. <laughs>